Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And coming up, it's our final episode of Meet the Customer. Meet the Customer is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360. Salesforce unites all of your teams, marketing, sales, service, commerce, and IT around a single shared view of your customer on one integrated platform. And the result, your employees have all the information they need to do their best work and wow your customers at every opportunity. So to learn more about what Salesforce Customer 360 can do for your business, visit salesforce.com 360. Now let's join Jane Marie. Okay, heading into the Levi Strauss and Oh yeah, it's on my phone. Heading into the Levi Strauss and Company building. Hmm? I'm trying to make tape. What? It's a beautiful spring day in San Francisco, and I'm here with my little sister in tow to visit the birthplace of jeans. Did you know that only 10% of you don't wear jeans? And also, what's your deal? Anyway, we're here to visit the Levi's archive where they keep all of their coolest artifacts from old photographs of gold diggers and 501s to a bedazzled pair of jeans once owned by JLo. Designers here at Levi's use the archives to get new ideas and researchers use it to get old ones. Right away, just wandering around the lobby, I learned something new. This, what the heck is this? A denim loom. This loom was used by cone mills Oh, cone denim is by a mill called cone. That's, did you know that? It doesn't have anything to do with cones. It's like coffee whiskey. A guy named Coffee made like a certain type of grain mill or something that they make whiskey on, or still, a still, not a mill, a still. I'm here to meet a woman with a very cool job and a very cool name, Tracy Panic. I'm the historian at Levi Strauss and & Company and director of the company's archives. And all the things that you see on display are from our archives. And I'm the caretaker, if you will. And how do you get a job like this? Well, you can get a degree in history. So I have a graduate degree in history and got to be a Levi's fan. So I grew up wearing 501s uh, in the American, American West, Shadow of the Rocky Mountains. And that's, that was my high school uniform. Okay, so Levi Strauss, ever heard of him? He was born in 1829 to a large Jewish family in what is now Germany. That's a picture of his home. Very humble beginnings, the youngest son in a Jewish family. And as a Jew, there were lots of restrictions on what he could do uh, for work. His father was a traveling peddler who also supplemented their income by renting out parts of their house to boarders. But he passed away when Levi was still a young man. And so Levi, his mother, and two older sisters decided, like many people in his generation and still today, to immigrate to America. He comes to New York. He has two older brothers living in New York. They have a dry goods wholesale business. So they're selling fabric, clothing, umbrellas. And then he hears, I'm sure he saw in the newspaper, very romantic ads of what's happening in California. It's the gold rush. And people are literally rushing to California. They're moving in by the thousands, but they're coming in search of gold. 
And Levi decides that he's going to expand the family business on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So he would work with little stores. He was selling them supplies for little mom and pop shops all over the West, particularly in those mining towns. So here's Levi bringing dry goods, socks, underwear, fabric to them thar hills. Clearly, since we're talking about him almost 200 years later, he had the right idea and became quite successful. And then one day... In the 1870s, Levi gets a letter from one of his customers, and this letter changes the course of his business. Uh, His name is Jacob Davis. He's a tailor in Reno, Nevada. And Davis writes to him. He needs some more fabric and some other supplies. But he also tells him about this unusual method that he has of making work pants. Um, He's been asked to, to make really tough work pants that don't tear. And he had the idea that if you take a little piece of metal and add it to the pockets of a pair of pants, you could make them strong. He does that, and the pants start selling like hotcakes and he can't keep up with the demand. So he writes to Levi, and in addition to asking for supplies, he also asks if the company wants to partner on a patent for this unusual riveting process. Because people were just stuffing their pockets full of gold, and they were falling apart. (laughs) They probably hoped to. (laughs) Yeah, tough work pants. So that's when things changed. They get uh, the patent, which we refer to as the birth of blue jeans. And... The, manu- the first manufacturer of blue jeans begins in San Francisco in 1873. Now, I didn't know this, but that first iteration of Levi's were kind of like waders that went over your regular pants to protect them. They called them overalls, and you held them up with suspenders. And they looked a lot like our jeans today, only baggier, and there was only one back pocket, and no belt loops, and there was a cute little cinch thing with a buckle in the back. And there was a rivet in the crotch, but other than that, they were exactly the same. The 501s we wear today evolved rather slowly. In 1886, they added that leather patch on the back with the two horses on it as a way of indicating the strength of the jeans. A couple years later, they started calling them 501s based on a lot number. In 1901, they added another back pocket due to demand. And then Levi dies, which is sad. And then a few years after that, there's a huge earthquake, which starts a giant fire and the whole place burns down. Also sad but they rebuild. Then they invent coveralls for kids. Remember them? And in 1922, they realize people are wearing the jeans without other pants underneath. So they add belt loops, which compels some buyers to start cutting that cinch off the back. So they get rid of that and eventually lose the suspenders because everyone stopped wearing them. So now you've got the style of jeans we wear today. Phew. By the 30s, there's a little bit of a shift. That's when women are introduced to the first blue jeans in the world. Wait, so the, that women were not wearing them starting in 1873, was that because there weren't women out here? Because it was mostly men coming for the gold? But I mean, the women were cleaning them, I imagine, <laughs> but not able to wear them. So uh, that's partly yes. There were mostly men. There were some women that came out, but it was still the late 19th century. Women were not wearing pants generally. By the turn of the 20th century, uh, they're starting to 
move, immigrate, be out here in the West, and they need practical pants. So you have someone like Pearl Baker, who we know about, because we have her picture in our archives. She's been on a ranch in Utah since 1909 with her family, and she ends up taking over, and she wants Levi's, like her brothers and her father, other men in her life are wearing. So she starts adopting men's 501s. Of course, the company hears about this this need, and that's when they introduce Lady Levi's, the first women's blue jeans in the world. Now women are wearing them not just to work on the ranch, but vacationers are wearing them on dude ranches. And they're just playing cowboy. And so they're starting to dress up and you're starting to see a shift. Like when people dress up for a festival or something. Yeah, early, we can think early Coachella. Yeah, maybe just not the cutoffs. Of course, just like Coachella, celebrities eventually caught on. Levi's began supplying costume houses in Hollywood and outfitting the biggest stars of the day. Maybe we should look at this this jacket over here. <laughs> uh, if you are a fan of 40s, 50s uh, music, American music, you might remember the singer Bing Crosby. I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande, but my legs ain't bowed and my cheeks ain't tanned. I'm a cowboy who never saw a cow, never rope to steer cause they don't know how. Sure ain't a fixin' to start in now. Oh, On one uh, occasion, he went up to Canada. He was at a hotel, he'd been out hunting and fishing all day, and he was dressed in all denim, head to foot, because it was the, you know, appropriate attire for being outdoors. Uh, he's outdoors and he goes back to his hotel, but he's not admitted. They don't recognize him. He's not they, they tell him he's not dressed appropriately. Denim is not allowed. And so he, it wasn't until a bellboy noticed and said, it's Bing Crosby, that they let him in and the story got all over the press. And Levi Strauss and company heard about it. So as a response to that, they created this lovely denim tuxedo. Uh, and Bing wore this to a movie opening with a pair of 501s. So he had his full double denim and uh, if you've heard of the phrase Canadian tuxedo, that's where it comes from. And JT and Brittany thought they were onto something. Not everyone was a fan all the time. We'd had complaints. In fact, we have some letters um, with these complaints noted that the rivets at the back, see those rivets on the back pockets, that they'd been scratching saddles and cars. And people didn't want that to happen. So we said, okay. We're going to put our rivets underneath the denim. I have one of those letters with me here from a customer who was pretty sure this was her idea. It's dated May 26th, 1938, and it reads, About one and a half or two years ago, I wrote to your company in regard to your making your Levi's without buttons on outside of the waistline and leaving the rivets off of pockets. They sure could scratch up chairs and finely wear holes in upholstered furniture and auto cushions. You wrote me a nice letter telling me it would be impossible to do this. When to my great surprise and delight, my men folks got some Levi's about two weeks ago with no buttons and covered rivets. I just thought perhaps my little right hand had some bearing on this so that I wanted to surely write and thank you many, many times for making them this new way. Yours very respectfully, Mrs. Harris, Caldwell, Idaho. idea or not, 
The solve that she's talking about was to put the rivets under a layer of fabric on the back pockets. But they would eventually wear through, and the company would start getting letters again. So Levi's got rid of the back pocket rivets altogether. Go ahead, check. They're not there. It's like a Mandela effect. I could have sworn. But yeah, you see this kind of evolution. A lot of it happening because of customers responding to us. Has Levi's ever gotten it wrong? Like missed what the customer was saying? So 50s, we introduced this product. They were called, uh, they were called spikes. Spikes because they were kind of this tailored, you know, a narrow down at the bottom of your ankle. A really great product, but it wasn't just about the silhouette. It was about the color. And the way we advertised them was with little boxes of jello. And if you said you can get spikes in orange, the same color as the jello, then then people would know what the color is. Yeah, it was just an easy way. And you had, if they were in the store on a display, you would you would sometimes have them displayed with a little box of jello, the orange pants with a little little box of the, you know the orange jello product. <laughs> I know it's kind of funny. These colorful spikes were a flop. They may have been a flop in the 50s, but Tracy says if they'd waited just a little longer, like a decade, she's sure they would have been a hit. She told me that in the late 60s, there was a tiny shop in Haight-Ashbury that started turning 501s into bell-bottoms, which were just becoming all the rage. The shop owner, a woman named Peggy, would see hippies coming down the street in Levi's that they'd cut open on the outside ankle with a piece of quilting fabric inserted to make them all floppy and wide. Peggy started to sew them and sell them in her store, but soon she couldn't keep up with the hippies, who all somehow had cash for jeans. So Peggy went to Levi's headquarters, as one does. She just walks right up and asks them to manufacture them for her on credit. And they did. Soon they were making bell-bottoms galore. And for a minute there, Levi's brand leaned really far into the counterculture. Now, Jefferson Airplane. Yes, that's Jefferson Airplane. And I'm sorry, I can't talk over Grace Slick. I'll be right back. You'll be delighted to learn that that wasn't the only commercial Levi's asked Jefferson Airplane to make. The most beautiful girl is the girl from Old Twig City. And her boyfriend wears stretch Levi's. She thinks he is something, really something. And she digs stretch Levi's. 25% stretch Levi's. She always kisses him and hugs him. All right, enough of that nonsense. Soon it was the 1970s. And what did people want then? Polyester. So for the first time, Levi's strayed away from denim into realms unknown. There was a stranger who came into our town. He was tall and had eyes that could look right to the bottom of you. We might have welcomed him except for one thing, his pants. They weren't dull like ours, and this troubled us. Stranger, how is it your pants have colors and flared legs? He just smiled and said, I'm wearing Levi's. Dull has gone out of style. Then in his strange way, he transported us to a world of Levi's slacks and jeans, tweeds, cords, 
flares with Daycrum polyester. It was magic. Push jeans, blue jeans, bells, beautiful Levi's magic, coveralls, knickers, and knits. And we cried for more. No, I must go to other towns, he said, and he left. Left us with our new Levi's. Yes, we'll miss that stranger. But you know, life will never be dull in our town again. By the way, how are things in your town? The 60s and 70s, man. And we think things are weird now. These steps and missteps happen over and over and over again. What I find so shocking is the willingness Levi's has to try new things for their customers and throw out ideas when they don't work. It seems like anti-fashion. Where most designers are trying to tell you what to wear, here we're telling them. And they're listening. I think that that organic relationship has always been super important. It's still something that we do. We do listen to the customer, and if things aren't selling, you know, then then we'll make adjustments. Spikes, okay, they didn't work in the '50s, so we're gonna we're, we're gonna pull those. Uh, maybe we'll introduce them at, at a later time. But if you are a brand and you you've lasted, the company's almost 170 years old. Blue jeans will be 150 in 2023. You don't survive all of those things unless you have some ability to listen and respond to your customers. It's so unusual because I can't imagine how that kind of communication would happen nowadays. I mean, with the market being as huge as it is, how, how do you get feedback anymore? Well, uh, it's much more, I guess it's much more scientific. We've got social media, so we can get anecdotal kinds of things, but um, it is much more of a science. So you can survey, uh, you can ask people, um, and, and you can even observe trends. So it's a little bit different but some of the same principles apply. If you've got quality products, if you're willing to do what it takes to respond to the customer, listening, reacting, I think you can still, you can still be pretty good at responding. That concludes our series, Meet the Customer. We hope you enjoyed it and would love your feedback. So head on over to salesforce.com slash podcast survey to let us know what you think. And next week, we're back to our regular programming on Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for listening. <laughs>